You can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions, plus get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph. Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. This week, my guest is Professor Roy Foster, Emeritus Professor of Irish History at the University of Oxford. I think I'm right in saying that. Uh, The author of Modern Ireland and Studies of Yeats, among many other books. And his new book is a short book by Princeton University Press called On Seamus Heaney. Roy, welcome. Seamus Heaney is a sort of peculiar figure, isn't he? Because, you know, we like our poets to be kind of maudy and miserable and troubled. And on the surface... He seems to have been quite a happy, well-adjusted, well-balanced man. Is that the right impression? Well, he was, in a phrase he used himself in a lovely poem, rather worried poem, he was steeped in luck. And part of the luck was having a very rock-solid personal, private family life, being an adored child, having a very settled and much loved family background and that's rare with a great artist I mean I compare him to Yeats at some certain certain points in this book as people often have done but their backgrounds in terms of security couldn't have been more different at the same time he's not as unequivocally cheerful and sunny a character as you might assume from this and there are depths and darknesses from the very early work. One of the revelations to me was, I'd always thought the darkness begins with North, that extraordinary collection in 1975 about the encoded violence of Northern Ireland and of of Nordic societies, in fact. But then when you go back to the early, supposedly more pastoral work, it's full of bombs and guns and reconnaissance towers and threats and blood and rats and eels and frogs and slime uh, it's a darkening vision and the vision darkens through his through his life in a way too as well as the wonderful transcendent and spiritual level which comes increasingly into his very late poetry there is i think a darkening vision which as i say in the book hasn't entirely had its due well to sketch his his childhood which you've you've touched on because it was such a deep resource for his verse throughout his life you know, what was the island into which Seamus was born and in which he grew up? I mean, you say, you know, obviously 1968 is a great, you know, sort of cut-off, but, you know, what, what was the island up until 1968 that he experienced? Well, he's born in 1939, the year Yeats dies, interestingly. So he grows up during the war in Northern Ireland, which is a war zone in a way that the South wasn't. And this finds its way into his poetry as well. A Sofa in the 40s, for instance, a lovely poem about childhood games, but the war is out there beyond. It's a smallish farm. His father's a cattle dealer who moves very widely around Northern Ireland. His mother and his aunt run the house and they are both memorialized in wonderful poems. Large family, siblings, brothers, a much loved brother who's killed in a car accident outside the house as a child, and this is the subject of one of Seamus's most beautiful and very early poems, Midterm Break, which is very much anthologized. That brother, Christopher, will start haunting his poetry at the towards the end of his life as well. 
So it's a secure and happy family, but with its share of tragedies. And it's against the background of Northern Ireland and all we know in terms of encoded violence and antagonisms there. But Heaney always is, goes out of his way to make clear that social relations with their Protestant farming neighbours were very good. And another very beautiful and quite early poem called The Other Side is about a Protestant neighbour coming into the yard to visit in the evening, but waiting outside till the family has stopped saying the rosary. Very beautiful poem. Initially in an early draft I found called Community Relations, which is a much more obvious title than the other side, which suggests a great deal more. It's, it's a good example of the way that James's titles often change in draft until he hits exactly the right note. So he's growing up in a what has to be called a divided society. He's very brilliant. He's a scholarship boy. He goes to St. Columns College in Derry, where he meets many of his future friends, including the politician John Hume, as well as the critic and fellow poet Seamus Dean. He's a star in Queen's University. He moves to a teacher training college and then back to lecture in the English department in Queen's. He's planting out poems in local magazines. And then he's discovered, if that's the word, by Faber. Very early, 1964 or five, I think is when he begins to, is his connection with Faber and Charles Monteith, 1966, Death of a Naturalist, his landmark first book, which is a great landmark in Faber's history as well as Heaney's. So though he's from this rural um, small farm background, he's very early on treading into different territories. A notable occasion of this is when he goes in 1970 on a visiting lectureship to Berkeley in California, what he called his period of silence, exile and sunning. <laughs> you, remember the, you remember the great joy, silence, exile and cunning. And there he's exposed to all sorts of new things. Interestingly, Czeslav Milos, who will be a friend and an influence on him later, is also at Berkeley then, but they don't meet at that particular point. But he meets lots of other people, including, and I find this very interesting, a man called Thomas Flanagan, terrific lecturer, critic, academic, but also he becomes a marvellous historical novelist. He wrote The Year of the French, The Tenants of Time, The End of the Hunt, a wonderful trilogy about Irish history. And it's from that exposure in California to fellow Irish academics that Heaney begins to be really interested in Yeats' choice, the major canon of Irish writing. He's been previously more preoccupied by Hopkins, Wordsworth, certainly Patrick Kavanagh, an Irish poet, but the, the Yeats-Joyce continuum, which will mean a lot to him in later life, really begins when he goes to California in 1970. Yes, yeah, I think you, you quote him saying something to the effect that, you know, while he's in California, he sort of turns inward on this journey towards his, his Irishness and his... Yeah, I think that happens quite a lot with emigrants. I think it's a factor in emigrant culture. Sometimes it has the less attractive or less productive effect of them keeping a vision of the old country, which is sort of held in aspic. You get this with, I think, Italian Americans and very much with some Irish Americans. Their recognition of what the mother country has become doesn't really ever catch up with what it is. Seamus isn't like that because he just goes for a year, comes back. He, he does another visiting term later. And of course, 
slightly later in his life, he teaches in Harvard for a term every year, semester every year. So he's always got this foot in another camp. But Ireland is where he belongs, returns to, settles in, and where he becomes, I guess, what has to be called the national poet, which is a thing you don't have in this country. You know, I think the position that intellectuals have, writers, I should say, have in Ireland, you'd find parallels in Poland or in France, but not really in, in England, Scotland more perhaps. But how much of a sense of, of, as it were, kind of groupness did he feel with the Irish poetry scene? I'm interested because he's, you know, as you tease out in this book, you know, when he started, he was, you know, unafraid to, and, you know, ag- aggressively sort of taking influences and learning his music from Hopkins and learning a lot of his, you know, subject matter in some ways, an approach from Wordsworth. He was taking the English canon as influence. You know, he moved away from Belfast to Dublin. You know, he kind of was involved, but not completely involved with the the Field Day project. And you know, he was making his reputation on the mainland. First of all, yeah. did that did that leave him a bit to one side? I don't think so, because Irish writers have always done that. I mean, Irish writers well, they usually publish in London, don't they, when they reach a certain level of success? I mean, that's an old old tradition back to Yeats and beyond. Until recently, Irish writers would always, their agents were always in London as well. And that's slightly changed now, but still I would think that's the tendency. Um, And Seamus is certainly representative of that. He is, another theme I've tried to stress in this book is his brilliance at evading being pinned down. His preservation of an artistic integrity, but his ability to keep an independent stance And many of his poems reflect that, especially in relation to Northern Irish politics. His alter egos, like Yeats, he has alter egos, but it's not Crazy Jane. It's Sweeney, the mad bird king of Irish mythology, who flits around the island living in trees and complaining. Flann O'Brien makes wonderful use of this in Let's Swim Two Birds. Heaney makes a rather more, I suppose, serious use of it. And a wonderful poem, particular favourite of mine, Sweeney Redivivus, describes the bird king flying around and avoiding people who want to celebrate him and think they know his story and he doesn't want this even if his story happens to be true. That negotiation with politics, one of the things that comes out in the book that I thought was really interesting, all through those early years up to North and indeed later on, you say, you know, he's writing poems in which some of the, the violence and division in Northern Ireland is brought out in metaphorical form and, you know, in the metaphors and the the language of it, but he's not expressly political. And you say he's actually privately writing poems that are much more political, but just not publishing them. Yes, and I think that's as much as an aesthetic as a political decision. These poems aren't very good. This is early stuff. This is late 1960s. The voice is very loud in them. It doesn't have that wonderful, slightly glissant, sideways Heaney quality. They are clearly describing incidents. There's one rather awkward, longish poem about going on a civil rights march and leaving his father behind and wondering what his father thinks about what he's doing. And it seems to me an unsuccessful poem, and that's why it's not been published. But there are fragments of that march and other marches Heaney was on in later poems, a poem called Triptych in the Station Island volume, 
has a mention of the scared irrevocable steps taken on the march as the helicopter circles above. So his own commitment is there, but he's not going to be the spokesman for his tribe. And that's the word he'd have used himself. He's determined to fly by those nets, Joyce again, while not ever selling them out. And, and he very clearly never does that. The famous polemical poem, the open letter to the editors of the book and British poetry, um, Andrew Motion and Blake Morrison, where he formally, humorously, but absolutely decisively rejects being called a British poet. The words, not the name's not right. Um, and he spent a lot of time drafting and redrafting that poem, um, which I deal with in some detail in my book. And I think successive governments, British governments, have tried to make him poet laureate. I think wasn't he approached to the new Labour years to be poet laureate? And he, he, he was said... certainly approached more than once, but he had more sense. Do you think that this idea of being a national poet was something he was sort of aiming for, or he saw sort of thrust upon him? I mean, did he? I'm interested in his relationship with. I guess Yeats would be the obvious precursor. You know, that's the. Yeah. He's number one. Austin Clark, who is an older generation of poets, than Irish poets, than he, and he said Yeats was like an, an oak tree whose shade inhibited anything else growing around it for the following generation of poets. Heaney's very determined not to be like that. And Heaney actually is of a generation, Kinsella, slightly older, Montague, slightly older, but they have got out of that shadow. And he spectacularly gets out of that shadow too. At the same time, he's claimed by excitable critics as Yeats's successor from a very early stage. And the fact that these critics include Robert Lowell, Clive James, suggests that this is a big noise that's being made. And he is very careful at negotiating that. An early lecture in 1976, I think later an essay, is called Yeats as an Example. And there's a query mark after the example. And he does write wonderfully about what Yeats can show to a poet about the poet's calling. But at the same time, he's distancing himself. The connection with Yeats becomes stronger as he himself becomes more confident and more assured, and it has to be said more famous, particularly after the Nobel Prize. And there is another way in which I think he's connecting with Yeats, which is an interest in the a level of, I'm avoiding the word spirituality, much less spiritualism, which you could apply to Yeats, but the spirit level in the title of one of Heaney's wonderful late collections becomes very important to him. Some of his greatest late poems are very much about other worlds than this. He's left his childhood religion behind him, but it's, it's language and it's idioms and what he calls the Catholicism of the mind remains. And some of the very late poems are marvelously acute and attuned to the other world, if there is another world, and to the underworld, which is a constant theme, which he plays on beautifully in his poems about the London underground, which becomes the other more sinister kind of underground as well. And a marvellous late poem, a particular favourite of mine, Route 110, is about crossing the sticks, which becomes the image of Karen, the boatman, like many other images from his classical education, become very strong for him at the end. That's Yeatsian as well, I think. I mean, this idea of the spirituality and the sort of numinous study entry into the poems, you identify, I hope I'm representing rightly, Station Island, this kind of mystical journey in which he meets ghosts, quite Dantean thing, as a sort of pivot in his career. To me, it's the hinge 
well, it's the hinge of my book, but I think it's a hinge in his life as well. And I quote the one thing from his unpublished diaries and notebooks, which I've read quite a lot of, that I asked permission to quote from, was where he describes himself sitting down to begin writing Station Island in his study in his house in Sandymount, because it's so vivid. And you get the sense of a moment when something is possible for him. It becomes this long, long poem becomes like an abandoned film set at some points, as he describes it, or an abandoned building site, which actually made me think of Fellini's Eight and a Half, which is also, I think, a great artwork about an artist at a certain point in his life, trying to make sense of what's gone before him, what's behind him, as well as what's in front of him. In Station Island, he, the ghosts he meets are not only the ghosts of his family dead, of a cousin who is murdered by Protestant paramilitaries, of another victim of a paramilitary murder whom he'd known as a GAA football player. They're also the ghosts of the writers in the Irish canon. Carl, William Carlton, James Joyce, Patrick Kavanagh, with whom he converses in this poem. Not Yeats, because it's, the whole thing is constructed around the Catholic pilgrimage of Loch Derg, and Yeats has no place in a Catholic pilgrimage. But it is his, his dialogue with his predecessors, ending with Joyce, who gives him memorable advice to swim out and find his own soundings. It's this theme of evasion and integrity again. It's an autobiographical work in many ways, but it's also something more, and it is a transaction with the other world, which will begin to become, I think, the recurrent theme in Heaney's later work as well. Yeah, you mentioned you think, which, which, as I was reading it, kind of leapt to mind that passage in Little Gidding, where Eliot has a similar vision. Do you think that was also in Heaney's mind when he was writing that? I very much think so, yes. I mean, when I read about the ghost fading on the blowing of the horn, it just, the, the connections are so powerful. Heaney negotiated Eliot very carefully. He was another of these overwhelming predecessors. And he uses him, but, and he writes about him very well, but not as much as he writes about other English poets, which is interesting. But that, I think, might be something of an anxiety of influence. And yes, I can't read Station Island, especially that particular visitation of a ghost, without thinking of Little Gidding, and I think I can't be alone in that. In terms of the sort of progress of his career thematically, you know, as you say, he's moved towards the, the other world being available, but do you think he developed in a very particular way stylistically? I mean, you know, Death of a Naturalist was astounding because it was so... You know, he seemed so fully formed as a poet. Yeah. You know, his sound effects were so assured and so there, you know, you didn't feel like he was struggling towards a voice. You felt like he'd arrived fully formed. Yeah, it's the, what I call in the book, I think the utterly unexpected, but the utterly appropriate word always, which explodes often and wonderful signature lines. A poem like Bogland, which is in, I think, Door into the Dark, which really announces what he's going to do with that old image of the bog and buried history is so sophisticated and yet has such clarity. That's there from the beginning. The developments I see in his poetry is the paring down of lines to a great thinness, sometimes two words in a line. And I think there's an influence there of, of old Gaelic poetry, which he knew a lot about and did English versions of. He's paring things back to a wonderfully almost haiku-like clarity and economy 
in much of the late poetry. But then at the same time, he's writing a poem like Route 110, which is expansive, autobiographical, almost sort of inclusive in almost in a station island mode. So he can he can work the two registers. A poem which is a, which was the Phi Beta Kappa poem at Harvard called Alphabets, about how how you learn to write and the symbols of language is the kind of poem in which he does both registers very authoritatively and beautifully. But he is he he is formed very early on and there is an astounding certainty. I call the first chapter of my book Certus or Curtus because he chose as his as his pseudonym when he was publishing poems pseudonymously in Certus or in Curtis, uncertain. And I think that was a kind of joke. It was never uncertain. He was interested in the past from very early on and sort of through his career. Is that just poets being poets or was it was there something particular for him in this? I think it's Irish being Irish, Sam. I mean, the past, history, come on. I mean, instinct with it. It's one of the things that makes it very nice being an Irish historian, even if you're slagged off a lot. And I know about this. At least people are reading you. He wrote in a private letter, which I read once and which really jumped out at me, that to him, politics and history were indistinguishable. That's Northern Irish, but it's also Irish. His early work, his early notebooks and drafts, there's a lot of... There's a, he, he, was, he spent a long time trying to write a play about the 1798 Rising. Some of his early poems are very frankly and directly about history, for the commander of the Eliza, at a potato digging, which is about the Irish famine, Linen Town. He's instinct with a historical sense. But this, as I say, comes literally with the territory. And where you have contested territory, as you have in Northern Ireland, that goes back to over centuries, that's going to supply you a theme. And he, he uses this very obviously, especially in some of the poems which excavate the way that language is used in Northern Ireland and the way that Elizabethan and other ancient tricks of the English language are preserved in Northern Irish dialect. That's again a view of history as a palimpsest with its survivals sticking up like things that have come up out of the bog. And that's essential to his vision, I think. But he was also sort of incredibly, you know, for someone who in, in lots of ways was so sort of hefted to Ireland, the influences that he was able to take on, and you know, as well as doing you know, Dante and classical poetry before that, you know, he was really interested in what was going on in the States, in Lowell in particular. Yeah, and in Eastern Europe. And one of the great experiences of his life was going to Milos's funeral, in fact, and I think you can connect that. I didn't have time to go into this, but I think you can connect that with his increasing fascination and absorption with the spirit level from around that period on. But America, you're right, is vital to that. And Harvard is a great kind of cross current of intellectual influences for him, which more so than he would have found, I think, had he stayed in Belfast or Dublin, much more so. And his friendship with major American critics, notably Helen Vendler, is also, I think, important in keeping him constantly branching out and reading all sorts of stuff that might otherwise not have, not have come his way. He's a great teacher. And the best lecturer I've ever heard, I think. I went to all those Oxford lectures as professor of poetry. And so, so did were, I when I was an undergraduate. Did you? Do you remember the one about, that I write about um, death in Larkin and, and Yeats? Yes. 
I thought that was one of the greatest lectures I'd ever heard in my life. I remember coming out reeling from it. No, it was extraordinary. But he was very interested in these forging these links, wasn't he? In this sort of syncretic thing that he'd pull everything in. You know, he'd find a way of linking. Yes, I think that's where his intellectual abilities and his abilities as a teacher, you know, when he began his career, he began as a teacher, but the teacher training college in Belfast said he's got to teach the other ones how to teach because he's as good a teacher as he is a poet. And that remained true all his life. And part of being a great teacher is that syncretic ability, I think, to pull things together. He's also endlessly generous with his time towards younger poets and the poets who grew up, so to speak, after him, many of them owe him, and, and say so, an enormous debt for the time he gave them as well as the um, example he set them. You don't actually talk very much in the book about Hughes, but there was, and if I'm misremembering it, one of his accounts of how he was, you know, he first, as it were, got the poetry bug, was pulling down the hawk in the rain from the library shelf. And he talked about the sort of voltage that went through him when he read it. I mean, is that a sort of one of those apocryphal stories about him? Or No, I don't think so. And he was close to Hughes and personally as well. And of course, lectured about him. Partly, oh God, I suppose I have to be frank here. I mean, I don't always get Hughes. <laughs> it's, it's one of my blind spots. <laughs> when you're writing a book that has to be 50,000 words max, you, you go for what excites you, turns you on, makes sense to you. The Hughes thing isn't my thing. And so I didn't spend as much time on it as perhaps I should have. There's a very frank podcast admission for you. Oh, there we go. Well, that's, that's, a, that's the international headline. <laughs> doesn't, <laughs> doesn't get Hughes. He seemed to start, if, if this makes sense, to start ending his career early. When you, when you say, you know, he started to be more preoccupied with what he always punningly called you know, the underground journey, you know, he was only sort of pushing 50, wasn't he, when he started to write these very death-preoccupied books? Well, Yeats said only two subjects were of interest to any intelligent person, and they were sex and the dead. And I think um, death is the great subject. I don't want to start sounding like Woody Allen or somebody, but it is the continuous preoccupation of anyone with, I think, a questioning mind. And especially if you've been brought up in that very potent Catholic world, which he describes and which is the world, as he says, that Gerald Manley Hopkins inhabited as well. Um, the other world and death and the transition to it is, it's what's going to come up all the time. The deaths of his parents preoccupy him and he keeps coming back to them. A beautiful poem album in his very last collection is, is very much about that, particularly about his father's death. I don't think it's morbidity in any way. I think it's, just a certain cast of mind. It could, I don't want to keep pulling the Irish thing, but it could even be a particularly Irish inflection. But he has a serious stroke and he, he is, he's, he's thrown slightly athwart by it, I think. And more than slightly, it takes some time to come back from it. And it's after that, particularly in 2006, that I think you get this preoccupation. He dies at 74, Yeats died at 73. Again, this odd parallel, very young, it would seem to us nowadays. But that also, maybe one has a sense of presentiment. But after you've had a stroke, you're going to have a sense of presentiment anyway. That was around the time of District and Circle. That Yes, 
Um, but the underground poem that I think you were maybe thinking of, the beautiful poem about being on the honeymoon with his wife, I mean, that takes him right back to the mid-60s. And there the underground, they're running through the London underground on the way to the proms, they're late. The buttons start falling off, a new coach is bought. And he thinks of Hansel and Gretel, but he also thinks, of course, of Orpheus and Eurydice. And he realises they are in the underground. It's a loving and, but at the same time, a very plangent and very, I suppose, prophetic poem. And he comes back to it with a very beautiful, much, much later poem called Chanson d'Aventure, which describes the trip in the ambulance after his stroke, holding his wife's hand. And again, the images of the underground and crossing the sticks. Do you think he was conscious of, of giving his career a shape? I mean, you know, we know he was ambitious. As he gets towards that, I mean, that last collection particularly, he's bringing back Tolland Man. You've got Sweeney coming back in The Blackbird of Glenmore. You know, there's a sense of doing everything up with a bow a little bit. Tolland Man in springtime is a revisiting, and District and Circle, actually, in the earlier book, is very much a revisiting of earlier themes, and I like your image of tying them up. He has a strong sense of the shape of his life. He is ambitious, nothing wrong with that. Yeats was madly ambitious <laughs> it's the ambition of the major talent you know you're going to make an impact and you know you're going to make an impact and the impact is to be made in a way of your choosing if that's ambitious it's completely defensible yes i didn't use that as a as a term of deprecation i was just i suppose just the sense of the way in which he was was shaping his career did you think there was anything he did badly incidentally no, I think he's he's very accomplished. I'm not mad about the Beowulf translation, I have to say, but that's mainly because Beowulf, sorry, we're back Ted Hughes again, <laughs> not my thing. But I think it's there's something laborious about it. And he admits that himself in a very interesting interview with a very perceptive Portuguese critic um, a couple of years later, that there is a kind of dutifulness about it. The long Sweeney Estray translation I don't think works, and I'm not alone in thinking that. I think Electric Light has longers in it. The only collection of his that I find that in, actually. Otherwise, I think the accomplishment and the cumulative accomplishment of the books, like Yeats, they're books rather than, you know, he writes books rather than poems. The way they build up to human chain at the end is an extraordinarily, well, as I've said, cumulative, but also assured and aesthetically successful and complete achievement, which is why it will last. Yeah. Why, do you, why do you think he did come round, as it were, quite late to doing Anglo-Saxon verse? I mean, that he sort of... Was there anything particular in him? Was he just like, I've got round to Beowulf? Or did he think this is part of the sort of linguistic inheritance that needs to be grappled with? I think it's much more the latter. And I think also he, early on, he said he wanted to get hold of the, the English poetic muse and make it eat rough, uncomfortable stuff, like the stuff that they produced in Northern Ireland. And there's, he's very good at that combination. Actually, I think that's what he's doing in the bog poems in North as well. But I think Beowulf, well, he, you know, he'd, all his life he taught English literature and Beowulf would have been part of that, and I think he wanted to give it his inflection. And the striking thing about the Beowulf, and what does make it very interesting, is his use of northern dialect words like toll, famously, in it. 
Isn't that also an Anglo-Saxon word, though? Yes, but it's still used in Northern Ireland. And that's the point. It's that survival thing. And I can't remember the name of that early poem of his about the way that words like that have gone out of use, mostly Elizabethan English in England, remain preserved in in in, in amber in Northern Ireland. Yeah. And in Beowulf, he's, he's making that sense palpable by using such words in his translation. So much so that when he does use more Latinate words, they jar with me at least, anyway. No, what, and I suppose funny, I should ask, what, what do you think the effect of the Nobel on him was in terms of either shoring up or problematizing the position from which he was, was able to write, you know, this independence, this, this thing he'd been working on to find a way of not be a spokesman. I remember when I, I asked him about it, he said he met, described it as, you know, uh, the Swedes came in, or the Swedish intervention. He had some very downplaying sort of phrase for it. Yeats called it the bounty of Sweden in a famous essay. <laughs> I think he's, he's sort of playing on that. He described the effect of the Nobel as a mostly benign avalanche. And it wasn't entirely benign. He was, he, he, he was the claims on his time was absolute, were absolutely enormous. He, just looking at what he had to do in those years after 1995 worldwide would exhaust you simply to read about them. No wonder he had a stroke. It's also a question of becoming a spokesman, which he never wanted to be. And he's very good at evading that particular imprisonment. But at the same time, he finds it hard to say no to things. The stroke gave him an excuse to, well, very much more than an excuse, but a reason to say no to things that he should probably have been saying no to years before. At the same time, it puts him in the pantheon. And when you think of the other Irish writers, notably Beckett and Yeats, who won the Nobel, it puts him in a continuity. And I think that was not, well, clearly not unwelcome. How could, how could it not be? Did you know him well, Roy, I should ask? Just... Not as well as I'd have liked to. I mean, I knew him. I've lovely dedications in some of his books, which I treasure. We met especially when he was in Oxford and we were friends but I, I was I was by no means an intimate R reading him intensely both his unpublished and published work over four or five years makes me wish I had been well it was a pleasure to speak to you about his verse anyway Roy thank you very much indeed for your time You can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions, plus get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph.